This is the BBC. This podcast is supported by advertising outside the UK. Capital One is building a better bank, one that feels nothing like a typical bank. It's why they've reimagined banking and built something completely different. Capital One Cafes. They offer checking accounts with no fees or minimums and savings accounts with one of the best savings rates in America. This is banking reimagined with your needs in mind. Open an account today at any Capital One location or online in five minutes and experience banking reimagined for yourself. Capital One. What's in your wallet? Capital One NA. Member FDIC. Thank you for downloading this episode of In Our Time. For more details about In Our Time and for our terms of use, please go to bbc.co.uk slash radio4. I hope you enjoy the programme. Hello, the Maya people of Central America have an extraordinary history with roots two or three thousand years BC. For over a thousand years before the Spanish arrived in 1511, they created great cities in Mexico, Guatemala, Honduras, El Salvador, El Salvador and Belize. Much of these, are, many of these are overgrown by jungle now, but their largest buildings remain, among them massive flat-topped pyramids, there are carved hieroglyphs, there are structures arranged for astronomy and broad stone plazas. The uh, radical reduction of the Maya through war and disease to the Spaniards when the Western explorers in the Victorian times uh, discovered what was going on there, they couldn't comprehend that people near, living near the ruined cities were descended from those who built them. But they are still there. With me to discuss the Maya civilization are Elizabeth Graham, Professor of Mesoamerican Archaeology at University College London, Matthew Restall, Edwin Earl Sparks, Professor of Latin American History and Anthropology at Pennsylvania State University, and Benjamin Wies, Eastern Arc Research Fellow in Digital Humanities at the University of Kent. Elizabeth Graham, can you out- outline the range of places where the Maya lived then and where they live now, then being, say, the first millennium? In a sense, the Maya are, un- are unusual because they occupy today the same places that they did in the, in the past. And the modern countries would be Guatemala, Belize, uh, Yucatan Peninsula <clears throat> in Mexico, as well as Tabasco and Chiapas, which are along the Gulf Coast, and uh, parts the western parts of El Salvador and uh, Honduras. And those are the places where we find the ruins of past civilizations as well. And how long, I mentioned 2000 BC, 3000 BC, the deep the roots are very deep indeed. Yes. Uh, archaeologically, they've been pushed back now to about 1100 BC. And by that I mean uh, in the last few years people are finding uh, monumental architecture that dates to that early in the Maya area. But uh, linguists who have studied the languages um, think that the root language of, of the Maya exists existed about 3,000, between 3,000 and 4,000 B.C. So uh, it, it probably, there are probably earlier periods that we don't know about yet archaeologically. But yes, it's a very deep history. There was a prominent city in the center of Mexico, um, Tauquihuacan. I've been rehearsing it all morning, uh, very, about 30, 30, 40 kilometers from the present Mexico yes, City. Yes. It was massive. Can you yes. tell us when it was massive and how it affected the Mayas? Uh, Teotihuacan, which is not a Maya city. No. Uh, in fact, we're not really sure who lived there, although recent work looks as if they might have been people who spoke uh, the same language as the later Aztecs, but we're not sure. It was a huge city. It rose in about the 2nd century, is when the largest buildings, uh, 2nd century AD, and uh, it declined 
mm, around 600. And it was the largest city, as far as we know, in in Mesoamerica. And it had a, it did have a huge effect on Maya civilization. For one thing, uh, trade was very extensive, and people from Teotihuacan traveled in the Maya area um, looking for, uh, well, trade goods. But also, the hieroglyphic inscriptions in some places indicate, particularly the, a, a place called Tikal, that there were actually people from uh, Teotihuacan who came to that area and married, probably married into the local royal family. We think that people from Teotihuacan influenced sites of Copan. So it's uh, it was a very powerful city that probably not only engaged in trade, uh, but also probably intermarried with some of the dynasties. So that great city sitting there, which is a massive city in the Mayan, in, in many different places, is there a dynamic interaction, particularly when the city in about 600-ish AD uh, fell or de- was depleted? Yes, it's interesting because when Teotihuacan declined, that is when we begin to see many Maya cities. Uh, well, they they were in existence before, of course, but they tend to increase their monumental architecture. We see an increase in hieroglyphic inscriptions. We see uh, an increase in inscriptions that tell us about interactions in this in these cities. So between about 600 and 800, some would say that that was the pinnacle of Maya civilization, and some of it may have had to do with the fact that Teotihuacan, um, de- you know, declined and left a power vacuum. Or maybe there was some power relationship which, having been released, set them free in some psychic way. That that could be, too. There's a big debate about whether Teotihuacan was an actual empire, uh, and some people think it was, so that they actually sent out armies and conquered cities, but other people think it was more of a trade relationship. Now, Matthew Russell, what do we know about the languages and the writing of the Maya? This is sort of a health warning to listeners here. It's 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 very difficult to pin this down. It's very complicated, but you're just the man to simplify it without losing any authority at all. Well, I don't know about that, but um, language it's, is important to understanding any civilization, but particularly Maya civilization, for a couple of reasons. One is... It's elemental to how we define who the Maya were and are. Um, all Maya people spoke one or other Mayan language. Um, there were 32 Maya languages still being spoken when the Spaniards arrived in the 16th century. And 20-something of those are still being spoken today by some 10 million Maya peoples who still speak those languages. And they're all part of the Mayan language family. At one point, thousands of years ago, there was probably a single proto-Mayan language. When you're talking about 3,500 BC, so was this was this house tech language? Is that, that, that uh, yes. Well, that, new, that, yeah, that, yeah, that was yes, supposed exactly. to be the prototype language. Yes, yes. I'm speaking probably from your notes, obviously. <laughs> Which, yeah, well, that's your, that's your problem right there. Um, <laughs> So you're on your own now. Thank you. (laughs) Um, The other reason why language is so important to the Maya and the one that gets Mayanists so excited particularly is the writing, Maya writing. Um, it's, It's really difficult to look at a page or block of Maya hieroglyphs without being absolutely fascinated by the intricacy and complexity and beauty of the script. I mean, I'm obviously biased, but I would argue that Maya writing is the most beautiful writing system uh, ever invented by any human society. 
Um, what's specific to it? It it's what's specific to it is its combination of well, it's a logosyllabic script. Which means? Um, which means that the logo part means some of the symbols or signs convey whole words. Uh, but some of those are pictographic in origin. So if you want to convey the word shield, for example, in my is pakal, and you can draw a very simple sign that actually looks a little bit like a shield. Some of the, the logograms or symbols that convey words don't appear to have any pictorial element left to them. Um, but the syllabic part means that you can convey pretty much any syllable in any Mayan language. So the, the Maya had almost a complete syllabary, not a perfect one, but almost a complete one. So going back to Pakal, for example, there's a, a, a symbol you can write that conveys pa, and then one for ka, and then you have your L at the end, where you can't just write an L, uh, but you can do la, and then the A is, is silent. And often the two would be combined. So you have a, a beautiful, relatively simple but beautiful sign that conveys pakal twice over. How does this compare? There were the rumours at one stage when Contiki went over the ocean and we all got excited that the Egyptians had taken their civilization to America and so on. That's been put aside now. But how does it look like Egyptian? Um, Ancient Egyptian, I mean. Perhaps in a very superficial way. Yeah. Um, because it's fascinating that they're not related, but they still look alike. A little bit. I think. I think because we're not used to seeing writing systems in which any of the symbols look like pictures to us um and that 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 initially in the early days of, of efforts to decipher hieroglyphs um and it, it took a long time a very long time for, um, for scholars to figure out how to read the glyphs and they're still working at it because it's a very sophisticated system and was written over many many hundreds of years and so there were variants in different parts of the Maya area and so on but I think the idea that um, it was all pictographic was one of the um, sort of red herrings that misled people and you you can you can write anything in Maya hieroglyphs that, that it's not um, any um, less flexible um, or than our alphabet. And they went into great areas, as we, as we all know from, from childhood, of uh, youngsters anyway, of massive areas, particularly of astronomy and so on. So there's a lot to write about. But just to, to, to clinch this, could Mayan, the different speaking, you said 32 different languages, uh, Kathleen has explained it's over, Elizabeth, sorry, Elizabeth's explained it's over a large, a large area. Could they understand each other? No. Uh, so why do we call them all Mayan then? So the the I'm, I'm going to get in trouble with linguists now to make well, this parallel. Like but um, if you if you imagine um, walking across Europe, um, say from the Netherlands, where where Ben is originally from, walking your way down to Portugal, as you walked, uh, you would um, find you're crossing from one language to another, and there's some mutual intelligibility. Um, but once you get all the way from the Netherlands to Portugal, uh, those languages are far enough apart that you might have a hard time. Uh, and so there's some kind of similarity with what happened in the Maya area. So as you walk from Yucatan south, um, you would be able to understand, to some extent, the next languages that you're coming to. Um, by the time you get down to Highland Guatemala, you'd have a hard time. So briefly, before I go across to Benjamin, what makes the Maya Maya then? 
That's a really good question. That's a that's a great. Now we're get, now we're digging in deep. Well, I mean, we invented we invented the the category, right? right? It's a it's a Maya civilization is a is a twentieth century invented category to help us to understand better. But you must think something went on. You can't just invent it if you think nothing went on. I mean, you call them the Maya because of what? So so the languages are, is a crucial part of it because all those thirty two languages are, are tied together oh. as being part of the Mayan language family. But then there are other elements elements of their civilization, like the glyphic writing system, um, like the long count calendar, um, which is their uh, linear reckoning of time. It's a little bit like our millennium, but theirs was 5,126 years long, for example. Um, That's used only by Maya people in the classic period. I've got to turn to Benjamin now. And another thing that we know about them, this is a, this is just a platform for, for the conversation, is they had great cities. Yes. How are these great cities planned? And can you give us some idea of what how great these great cities were? Well, they're very big. They're, they're in fact, in terms of, of um, aerial extent, they're so big that there was a lot of discussion about whether they were cities at all until uh, about 20, 30 years ago in, in academic literature. Um, and well, what would they have been if they hadn't been cities? <laughs> well, that's a good question. But um, uh, the, what you encounter when you when you travel through the jungle is is big ruins of very big monumental architecture, and that is what you tend to see. What you do not see is the sprawling landscape of settlement that is around it. Uh, and this is, I mean, if you, if you're in a jungle and it's all overgrown, you just literally do not see what is right next to you. So, for a long time, people needn't have uh, recognized that these were hugely developed landscapes. Um, and on top of that, because we are in a completely different environmental zone, we are in, in, in the tropics, it's, it's, it's humid, and the mode of life was very different. So the way that they decided to dwell in cities was very, very different. Um, and that meant that they took their space, as it were. They they had vast expanses of open space associated with their sort of house. Like plazas, plus. as it were. Oh, it's no, no, not just the, that's that's sort of the grey open space. We're talking also more green open space. Oh, really? So so we have city landscapes that incorporated big green open spaces as well as uh, well very very large gardens, as we would potentially say nowadays i mean they were they were not really meant for leisure i think so much as for for craft production and 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 growing foodstuffs within sort of the the household but the household groups have large open space around them as well so the effect of that is that you get a a a very sort of difficult to recognize archaeologically sprawling landscape of very very large expanses of space in which a lot of intensive development did take place so so all of these spaces were very intensively used exactly how we are still figuring out but uh, but that yeah uh, throws into question with our western mode of, of very compact very uh, architecturally oriented ways of building cities whether this would be cities at all and the recent developments, which has excited all of you in the, in the research I've read over the last 50 or 60 years, has been this new technology um, from from the air going through the jungle and discovering many more cities, bigger than you thought, more complicated than you thought, but on a much larger scale than had been anticipated. Yes, yes, this development 
started uh, with aerial photography and then moving on to satellite imagery and uh, in, in multispectral Landsat imagery, Landsat being a satellite pro uh, program that, that has run for, for quite a long time, uh, people started recognizing that the chemical makeup that is caused by the decline of the cities in the jungle actually changes uh, the soils in such an extent that the uh, 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 the biological activity in the trees changes, and that is something you can pick up in in multispectral bands in in satellite imagery. That that was sort of a first step to start to recognise that there is many more cities, many more sites that 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 are there. So this was a first step in this this remote sensing, as we call it in archaeology, way of of aerial reconnaissance um, uh, for uh, well in 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 this in this area. Um, that first step was only really to to recognize where other sites were located what What is really exciting in the last well we 're not even talking ten years here is that we have a new technology called lidar light detection and ranging and this is where you put a, a, a laser pulse shooting device on an airplane and you fly systematically over an expanse of space and it just very very rapidly shoots multiple pulses off. Uh, laser beams down to the ground um, and you get returns, echoes of these laser beams that are received back, back up. Uh, what this allows you to do uh, is to calculate height differences and now because Maya cities were largely abandoned uh, underneath the trees you have height differences that, that alert you to the, to, to the location of archaeological architectural remains. So you you get a very very minute detail in terms of height, um, and this allow and and because the pulses of the laser are so dense, you can actually see below the trees because there's always a few of these pulses that reach the ground. Can, uh, Elizabeth Graham, what can you can we develop this city idea <clears throat> because it's turned it in a way from as I understand from what I've read from being thought of as a great civilization to being a massive civilization the whole the scale of the operation has changed can you talk a bit people know about the flat top pyramids and so on but can you develop the the city from what uh, from what Benjamin has said or the city well one of the things that um, lidar has done is to show us a bit about what the area around these uh, central precincts, the flat top pyramids that you talk about the the tallest ones were really uh ritual or civic buildings, and uh, they often had uh, buildings on top and uh, they formed this the city centers the The thing about Maya cities though is that they tended not to form a grid pattern uh, the, the all of the buildings, whether they were ritual ceremonial civic, were organized around plazas, as Ben was talking about. so then, as the city uh, de develops uh, it it looks different from what we would expect because what you see are all of these plaza or patio groups, and they 're not arranged according to a grid and with lidar what what we have been able to see is that in addition to having these groups of various sizes and uh, function. That they, as Ben was saying, they were, they were manipulating all of the land between these uh, stone buildings. I guess you could say there is there are terraces, there are gardens. Were the quarries nearby? Were there yes. lots of quarries? In yeah. In fact, a lot of the uh, a number of the what we call reservoirs, uh, places that were turned into reservoirs, were actually actually originally limestone quarries, oh, uh, right. quarries for something uh, for lime. Uh, for producing uh, plaster on buildings and also for processing corn. They quarried clay. Uh, 
and all of those quarried areas, once they used up the material or moved on, that they would turn those into usually into reservoirs. But there's one thing that's really important about Maya cities, and people don't realize it, is that in the New World, or in Mesoamerica, there was never a grazing animal complex. So you didn't have cattle, you didn't have sheep, you didn't have goats, and you didn't have people clearing forest to grow grass for grazing animals. And that makes for a, an entirely different landscape that I think many of us can't envision because we've all grown up in a culture of hamburgers and beer and bread. And uh, No wheat either, was there? No, no wheat. Yeah. Uh, and it is true that maize is a grass, but it grows under quite different conditions. You can grow maize along with uh, some tree crops you can grow with other vegetables, so it, it does. When you ask me about the cities, uh, I try to envision what it would like, what it was like, but to some extent, it's it's difficult. The the, the flat top pyramids, uh, the gory, livid mind, also patronizing and looking down on previous persons. Oh, they must have been used for human sacrifice, mm -hmm. were they? Not, not that I'm aware, uh, and. I've, well, I, I've, I've written about this before, that uh, the whole human sacrifice idea is, is uh, bogus in that there, in none of the Mayan languages or the script is there any such concept. Well, I'm pleased to hear it. And, Matthew, uh, Matthew Russell, how are these cities ruled? Well, in, in parallel to the, the physical pyramids that Liz was just mentioning, there was a social political pyramid. And at the top of that pyramid were the nobility who comprised, we think, something like 10-15% of the population. And at the top of that was the royal family, royal dynasty, and a king, who in Maya was called Kuhul Ahau. Ahau means lord, and Kuhul uh, means sacred. So, so he was divine the sacred. right was there as well. Yes, abso right. absolutely. He claimed descent from an ancestral... Um, deity, ancestral localized deity. Was it the sun, or was it just a deity? It was. It was a deity, yeah. uh, and his his connection to that to that deity, uh, his sort of privileged link, underpinned his right to rule. Um, so there is a, a interesting parallel: the divine right to to, to rule, uh, and that that um, meant that he could claim that his rule kept everything in order. If you want the rains to come. Uh, and not there not to be a drought, and the, there were a series of devastating droughts all through the centuries of the classic Maya period and before and after it. Then don't rock the boat. You need your 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 kuhul ahau to stay in power, and f and for him to pass the throne on to his son, it was a patrilineal so you've line. You got the king, you got the uh, nobility. Were there the warrior class as well? Then, then what happened? Below, uh, then what happened next most, on the pyramid? Uh, well, most m most Maya are farmers. Then they're corn farmers. Um, that's 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 the majority. The the what, the other members of the nobility are doing various performing various functions, including um, higher level artisans, artists, um, uh, writers, and so on. And and those people appear to be, in many cases, if not in all cases, part of the nobility, even members of the royal family. King had a lot of wives, so there were a lot of... The, the dynasty was large in terms of number. That meant there were a large number of people, um, some of whom were high-ranking warriors. Most warriors farmed, except in the in the um, war season. Like Cincinnati. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. 
So we've got 85% left. What happened? What about them, Benjamin? We've got the king and the warriors. That's, that's 15%. What about the other 85%? So archaeologically, this is, this is much more difficult and has been for a long time. Um, so I mentioned the monumentality, and that is really what a lot of archaeology focused on. Uh, we have the writing, and that is what a lot of, uh, of the linguistic work and eventually historical work also has focused on. And then we're only really talking about elites. It's, it's much more difficult to actually get to the evidence for the commoners. Um, so Maya society, you have a... They built the cities, presumably. They actually uh, went out and yes, stuff and built uh, the cities. Well, that's we all have, they did. We build have to assume that somebody, <laughs> that somebody <laughs> built them, and probably not the king, uh, king himself. Yeah, I guess not. Um, what, what seems to have been in place, though, is that there, there was a sort of a corvée labour system in place, uh, especially in, in, in the classic Maya period, where the ruling class could demand uh, tributes also in terms of labour for these, these large public works to, uh, to be constructed. Um, so, so that is where we really see the evidence. When we go down to the household level, you need a much more detailed type of archaeology. So even with these new developments of LIDAR that actually do give us the expense and the layout, uh, we, we've got a, a few main problems. One of them is that that evidence doesn't give you any dating, so you don't know when it happened. The other thing is that you do not have any archaeological Materials, so you don't necessarily know what is going on. So one of the big challenges there is, of course, if you only have that data, how do you actually make sense of it? And this is something that we really need to work on. But um, in terms of of household archaeology, you need to really get to the ground. Uh, geophysics and geochemical analyses of, of how so uh, soils were used can can go some way. But you need to collect the the archaeological materials. But it is reasonable to assume that the 85% were people who tilled the land and so on, but they would be the builders of the cities and they would be the artisans who decided which stone went on which stone and which angle went on which angle. And that would be going on there with the 85%. I'm just quite uh, concerned about this 85% who I know you can't find out much about, but you can have a <laughs> guess. Elizabeth is going to have a guess. Uh, yes, there. Uh, we do have evidence that there was a very strong uh, trading class. There were merchants. There were craftspeople. There were people, craftspeople who worked uh, in elite households. There were craftspeople who made goods for the rest of the community. So it was actually really a, a quite a varied uh, society. And um, one of the things that's very interesting about Maya society is that we talk about objects like jade, uh, spondylus, the things that were varied, uh, valued by the elites. And you do find the finest jade objects in elite tombs. But in fact, all people had, almost everyone did have access to jade. It wasn't, uh, and to what we would call uh, items that tended to be appro appropriated or monopolized by the elite class. There was a wide distribution. Even uh, dietary data show that what we would call the common people had access to, to, to meat. Uh, that would be deer, would it? And, uh, uh, well, well they yes. Didn't have goats and, it, and, and it's interesting because yeah. what it shows, one of my friends does uh, faunal analysis, is that the better cuts did go to the upper classes and the other cuts went to uh, everyone else. But it doesn't show a, uh, a real division in which you know resources were heavily appropriated by the rulers. It shows quite a wide distribution. Ben wants to come in for a moment. Yes, yeah, so, so, so it's also quite important that, uh, uh, to say that we don't have just one kind of Maya city. So new evidence in, in cities like Tunjuk Mule actually do show that even in the classic period where we have a regal ritual... Classic period is from about 250 to 900 Indeed. AD. Yeah. Indeed. 
um, that we have cities that we're organised in a slightly different way. So we don't have just all of that investment going into one acropolis of monumental architecture, but we have a much more dispersed level of, of uh, monumentality on a, on a sort of a lower level and indeed these, these wide distribution of goods. So we could potentially really be talking about market towns. And this is repeated also in the post-classic after, after the, the initial sort of flourishing... Matthew, two things. First of all, there's this idea around that Maya civilization collapsed. Uh, Is that collapse? Is that a useful word? No. That's the short answer. Um, So what word do you use? This is is about 980. And this collapse took place. What happened then if it didn't? Well, there was a a depletion of the cities. Yes. Uh, Some of the cities were abandoned, it seems. So what happened? There was a a transition. Yeah. if you just focus in or if one focuses in on one particular city, in some cases the abandonment um, was fairly dramatic um, and accompanied by warfare. And so it does look like a collapse. But if you pull back your focus and look at the Maya area as a whole or even just uh, the lowland Maya area of um, Highland Guatemala and Belize, uh, then that collapse word starts to look less and less useful because it becomes a process that takes several hundred years. And so that's not much that's not much of a collapse, particularly as cities to the north are flourishing at this at the same time that those cities are becoming abandoned. Elizabeth. Well the sites that I've excavated in Belize for almost forty years didn't didn't collapse. They were not abandoned at all. There is a collapse. I mean there is a, a huge political change, but there were many cities and places that stayed occupied and as Matthew says there, it varied throughout the Maya area, but we tend to emphasize the very large cities in Guatemala because they were abandoned and you have these uh, uh, structures you know, decaying in the jungle. But in fact, most of the coastal areas, and as Matthew said, northern Yucatan, still maintain very, very lively cities and trade, and so it's a kind of mystery, really. Matthew, Matthew Russell, when the Spanish arrived at the beginning of the 16th century and through the 16th century, what did they make of the Maya in their writing and what we have. What did they make of it? Well, they were very impressed. And we were just talking about cities. When the Spaniards are sailing along the coast of Yucatan in the late 1510s, they see Maya coastal cities. And that's their first experience of urban Mesoamerica. They haven't yet discovered the Aztecs. And and, And these are cities that did not exist in the islands of the Caribbean. Um, and they're impressed enough that there are written reports of those early voyages that are published in different languages in Europe. This is something that amazes them. They have various interactions with Maya people that are diplomatic, hostile. Um, that's their first impression. Then the Spaniards discover the Aztec Empire and invade and attack it, and there's a really violent two-year war against the Aztecs, which you know about, Melbourne. And after that, the Spaniards return to the Maya area, and then their impression changes. Um, first of all, they start to see the Maya as very bellicose, very warlike. They're not easily conquered or subdued. The wars of conquest in the Maya area go on for years and years and are, and are very brutal and bloody. And secondly, they're disappointed. They're disappointed by the resistance that the Maya show and the fact that um, the Maya don't appear to have um, sources of precious minerals like gold and silver that can sustain wealthy colonies. They're hoping that the Maya are going to be like the Aztecs. Um, 
and they're not quite like the Aztecs, or at least the, the sort of the Spanish image of what the Aztecs are like. Benjamin, so how did the Maya respond to the Spaniards? What do we know about that? Well, um, as many as there is Maya groups, there's probably as many different responses. Uh, what, what I think really goes on is after the conquest of, of the Aztec Empire is that uh, you have to separate two levels of conquest. You have the, uh, the Highland Guatemala conquest, and this was a story of, of uh, in a way, intrigue politi- politically. So the Cachiquel Maya, uh, they were... Uh, represented already in the Aztec Empire, and they had um, a, a big foe, a big enemy of them, the Quiche. Um, so they collaborated with the Spanish to overthrow the Quiche, and that is that is how a large of the a part of the process of conquest there went. So um, that is one of the responses that you get. If if we then go to um, to the conquest of uh, the lowland uh, Maya area, you see that there is a lot of resistance by all separate groups and a lot of different campaigns need to take place uh, in order to persuade that. And again, sometimes Maya would actually try to collaborate to uh, to settle all disputes with their with their already existing enemies. And, and sometimes there's just a plain, plain wall. Can I come back to you, Matthew? How technologically developed were the Maya at this time, particularly when it came to warfare? <clears throat> the, the, the trickiness of that question, when we talk about the conquest and battle between Maya warriors and Spanish conquistadors, is that it's very easy to slip into um, arguing that the Spaniards had technological superiority which is not an argument that, that we like. Um, and that's based on the fact that they had um, steel and guns, right? Uh, because, the reason we don't like that is because we feel as if that leads into a larger analysis whereby the Spaniards conquered the Maya because they were superior in, in some larger sense. Um, it's true that the Maya were Stone Age civilization, but I would argue that that simply meant that technologically they were different from the Spaniards, not inferior. Um, And I know you asked about war, but let me kind of shift the question a little bit. If we were to um, go back to, say, the year 700 and the four of us would get to live for a week in a European city and live for a week in a Maya city, and then we have to decide which one we want to live in for the next five years, I'm betting all four of us would choose the Maya city. And that would partly be a question of technology, that the Maya developed a technology for managing and manipulating the natural environment, um, water resources and so on, that created uh, cities that I think were more pleasant places to live in with the provision of, of, of food and so on um, worked worked better so they didn't have ocean going ships and gunpowder and, and, and steel and therefore weren't crossing the ocean to attack the Spaniards but I don't think that that made them technologically inferior let me make one more point about because you did ask about battle Yeah. and Ben was talking about the Spaniards um, invading Highland Guatemala the Spaniards aren't going anywhere in the Maya area on their own. Any at any time that you have small groups of conquistadors on their own, they are defeated in battle. The only way they can subdue the Maya is by bringing thousands and thousands of warriors from central Mexico, including people that we would call Aztecs, 
who went in with the Spaniards and engaged in, in, in a series of campaigns over many years um, with extremely high mortality rates. So arguably it wasn't the Spaniards who conquered the Maya, it was actually the central Mexicans in the end. Well, I've never heard that. That's really good. It's a slightly rhetorical argument, but it's, it's, it's I think the others would agree that it's Would you agree? It's would you all agree with that? Yes. Elizabeth. The other factor Thank is you, that rules of engagement in warfare were very different. And among the Spaniards, what you did was engage in, in battle and kill as many people as possible on on during that battle. And even if your opponent turned and left the battlefield, you followed them and you killed them. Whereas with the, with the Maya... <laughs> It was dishonorable to die on the field of battle, and there are these very interesting descriptions uh, in with Montejo and Yucatan of the Maya not trying to kill anyone. They're they're trying to pull the officers, the captain, off the, their horses, and then they bring them back to their town, and they're killed later. That I think is where the idea of human sacrifice came in as well. But it's it's their warfare uh, rules of engagement were very different. Benjamin, can you briskly tell us about the huge impact of diseases, the diseases the Spanish brought? What were they? What impact do you think, from your research, did they have? Uh, so, so one of the the, the big diseases uh, that that really started wiping out my population is, uh, is smallpox. Uh, there's, there's probably some some others ty typhoid, and uh, those diseases just didn't exist on the continent. Um, so. Uh, of course, there was a lot of casualties in warfare, but actually the major, major casualties did take place in major epidemics just because these diseases were brought in, imported essentially from, from overseas, and they had absolutely no immunity to that at all. Have we any statistical measure for this at all, Matt? Uh Yes, but it's there's a lot of guesstimates um, because we don't know exactly what the population was before. Uh, the population loss number that is usually used is if we go from 1500 before any contact with Europeans to 100 years later the population has been reduced by about 90% by 90% yeah wow yeah it, it's 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 catastrophic there's some yeah. debate about there is those figures lot. but it was it was a In that region. large percentage i mean yeah. maybe it was 85 but yeah. it's yeah huge we percentage. haven't talked about the thing that lots of people would know about the mayas which is the their great advances in astronomy and, and the great right. stone building. Can you give us some idea of the magnificence of that and how fine it was and how it endured for thousands of years and, still, and so on? You mean the uh, astronomical yeah. techniques? Yeah. Yes. The, it, what's interesting about the Maya is that they didn't make the mistake that the Greeks made, which was to envision that the heavens were uh, uh, heavenly spheres, that the the uh, planetary motions were were symmetrical, were circular. And that held astronomy back in Europe, even until the, well, 16th or 17th century. They observed the night skies for hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of years and mapped the motions of the heavenly bodies. And that is why their calendar was so accurate, because they could predict uh, the cycles of the planets, of the sun, the moon. And uh, it, is a t it is an achievement, I think, that isn't... Uh, Recognized sufficiently because you often don't read about their astrono astronomical observation. In uh, Sorry, as I understand it, it was dominant in their culture. The cities were laid out on uh, to do with the planetary system and so on. Is that right? Well, they were laid out in a sense. They were they were like our cities in that they were laid out in cardinally oriented directions. 
so they had a concept of north, south, east, west, and center. So to that extent, this, the, we do often find that the buildings have east, west, or north, south orientation. Uh, the claims that they were uh, situated, some of them were situated to to observe the heavens, but uh, they varied hugely. So it is it's really difficult to say exactly what what criteria other than something like cardinal, what we would call cardinal direction. Once or twice, Benjamin, we mentioned how much that is undiscovered except by this laser photography. How much more? How how much more do you expect to learn from this? Are you going to get many more carvings and hieroglyphics and so on? What are you looking for? Are you looking for new stuff, or do you think it will be more of this intensely? Well, more well I think the real innovations for uh, for archaeological research aren't necessarily in the carvings. Uh, they are to do with uh, finding out how actually this society functioned, how the settlements functioned, and for that we need both this 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 lidar technology, but we also need uh, well more work on the ground. We need to find out what happened in these open spaces in order to really get down to the dynamics of the city. Uh, we need to know how that is encapsulated, how uh, social groups would actually be organised. And this means a much greater focus on the commoners. The other uh, major element of, of new research coming on, and we have a new generation of researchers really sort of uh, cracking this as, as we speak, is, is a more ec- ecological angle. So Liz has talked about how they manipulated uh, a lot of the landscape for environmental reasons. Uh, so the, the dynamic of the environment, and they, they inhabited several different kinds of environments, um, to the, the social structure of it, that is something that we really need to, to unpick. Finally, Matthew, um, to what extent you're very keen to point out that the Maya today still exist, <coughs> that they, although their hieroglyphics were Burnt or burnt by Catholic priests, all those these great books. There's only four remaining in there in Europe. It's a disaster. This killing of culture goes on all over the place. Um, but they use the alphabet to maintain their uh, traditions and maintain their. And you've, you've said there's 10 million, I'm sorry I'm rushing a bit, 10 million Mayan people still there. What are they yes. doing? Do, are they recognizably in the tradition of many hundreds, even thousands of years ago? So, yes, m- the Maya are still with us. The Maya have, have survived. Uh, one of the reasons why we don't like words like collapse and disappearance is because um, I think all Mayanists are constantly trying to um, remind everybody and make the argument the Maya are still here. They didn't go away. Talking about Maya civilization in that sense it's like talking about western civilization it, it, it has changed and evolved but it hasn't disappeared um, if we look at Maya civilization in the year 1000 and then 1500 there are a lot of changes the long count is not being used cities might look different um, but it hasn't disappeared then we jump to 2000 there's a lot of changes as a result of the Maya in, um, interaction with outsiders, the Spanish conquest, the modern world. But the Maya are still there, and many aspects of their culture still survive and, and persist uh, throughout the Maya zone in Yucatan and in Highland Guatemala and, and Belize. Well, thank you very much. I really enjoyed that. Thanks to Elizabeth Graham, Matthew Restall, Benjamin Viss. Next week we'll be talking about the early history of Bethlehem Hospital, which was also known as Bedlam. Thanks for listening. And the In Our Time podcast gets some extra time now with a few minutes of bonus material from Melvin and his guests. No, that's fine. I was going to say that. You are. usually tell me what I have now, so where are you no, going? No, no. I, I was just going to say that, uh, and it's probably important for the listeners, that there are many real Maya archaeologists today. I mean, mm. you know, I, I'm originally from North America, but there are, you know, people from Chiapas and Yucatan and uh, Maya who are both archaeologists, epigraphers. 
there are Maya communities that have taken it upon themselves to learn hieroglyphic inscriptions, have gone back to uh, writing inscriptions. So uh, it's, they're very active in their uh, researching their history. Am mm. I correct? Yeah, yeah, I think I think that's really important because um, well things that we thought we might get to say that of course we don't have a chance to say everything is we see Maya civilization through the lens of Western civilization we invented the concept of of the Maya just like we invented you know the concept of Mesoamerica we invented this period of the classic is it, period. Is it just like we invented did we invent the concept of the Greeks early on is it is that a parallel because each one probably one isn't it I, think, yeah. I, expe I expect yeah. it is because because well, they have city-states all over the place. Right. And, and I often sure. say, like, Boudicca of the Iceni, uh, when, she, when she fought the Romans, she didn't think of herself as a European. And to some extent, mm. when we use the term Maya, it's kind of equivalent to using our present-day term European to, kind of, to explain people's motives in the past. And so I, I often use that as an example that uh, it's, an, it's an invention, but it, it can be helpful. So the more that we can understand how the Maya saw themselves hundreds of years ago, the better. But also, the more that living Maya, Maya today, um, can be involved in the reclamation of Maya knowledge systems, um, the saving, I don't know if that's the right word, of Maya languages. Some Maya languages are now growing, right? There yes. are more Maya... Mm -hmm. Are the same... Can they un could, could they have understood people couple of thousand years ago. Is actually, that, that was one thing that didn't come up. No. There is an elite language. The, the hieroglyphic inscriptions actually represent a language uh, that was spoken by the upper classes or the rulers, but, but not necessarily the community. And uh, so you might have a multilingual community, but, well, again, it's like Latin in, yes, in you'll, Europe. Yes, you'll, you'll like that right? parallel, like medieval yeah. Latin. Yeah. yeah, Which was shared among the, the powerful people. This classic Choltean mm. you're talking Chultean, about. And this, yeah. this has helped, of course, also to create this label because then mm. the material culture and, and the language, and that is the markers that you see, the things that you really encounter when you go into the jungle because they have survived. Mm. Um, that is what helps creating this this culture area that that is seemingly the same but really when you get down to to society at a, at a deeper level isn't necessarily so it's it's a, it's, it's a fascinating world i it's think amazing uh, amazing uh, that it's sort of being rediscovered you sort of people you had an impression when you were in school that they'd sort of sorted most of it out and they, oh, they, we, we did have that sort of impression we but can i i think we can keep selling them i literally for another thousand years really? that's how much more there is to that's the new discoveries and there will be more texts i well. mean the san bartolo site it's like complete this is a new site in guatemala just discovered a few years ago uh completely changing how we see um, the maya past what pushes murals, murals, it pushes pictures. almost everything back 500 years back, so yeah. the way we define the classic period as beginning or in the third century all of a sudden in san bartolo they're doing things that writing things and the art and buildings and a whole way in which they're conceiving of their right. built and natural environment the way we think of as a classic, and it's 500 years before that. Yeah. And what so about Carlock Moore? We're being interrupted yeah. by Simon Tillotson, the producer oh. of the program, who's oh. going to make you an offer you can't refuse. Oh. Okay. Oh. <laughs> but also, listeners are asking about hot chocolate, <laughs> and whether the, uh, the connection between the Meyer and chocolate. There's nothing well, it was a domesticate. I mean, we, we're always keen to sort of um, point out the differences and how different they are and then we have something like chocolate and we've really embraced that and we all love it well the Maya did too and they, they really in the post-classic I think there's a lot of evidence of a lot of Maya throughout 
layers of society all drinking chocolate, and they they mm. were Cacao using that stimulating yes. chocolate and acid. Well, our word cocoa comes from the Maya word okay. cacao. There are many more history and discussion programs from Radio Four to download for free. Find these on the website at bbc.co.uk/radio4.